a Chinese proverb that says, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Welcome back to the Digital Assets Podcast. In this first episode of season two, we have with us the Bitcoin evangelist Gustavo Calderon, right from Washington, D.C., who takes us on a fascinating journey explaining the fundamental case for Bitcoin and why he believes Bitcoin will stand as the ultimate winner of the digital asset space. We will discuss the differences between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, the term Bitcoin maximalism, as well as the human tendency to gravitate towards the hardest money possible. This is not an episode you want to miss. Tune in and we hope you enjoy the episode. Perfect. So let's kick this off. Welcome to the Stockholm School of Economics, uh, Gustavo, and to us in the Digital Asset Society. Although you are not like here physically, we are recording this online. We are glad to have you here as an international guest to our podcast. On LinkedIn, I was really fascinated because you recently stated something like this. Bitcoin price predictions will continue as nonsensical as they are, and none will ever matter except this one. Bitcoin one day won't have a price and everything else will. I absolutely love the power of this statement, but I'm also curious if you could elaborate more on its meaning, its implication, and also your reasoning behind it. Yes, um, gentlemen, thank you for inviting me. You're right. I'm, I'm in uh, right outside of Washington, D.C., and I'm glad to join you this uh, Sunday morning. So that statement really gets to the crux of understanding what the long-term implications of Bitcoin are for humanity. So many people, as I'm sure we'll discuss it, view Bitcoin as just another asset, just like they view any asset, whether it's a stock, a commodity, a piece of real estate, and they view Bitcoin as, yes, sure, Bitcoin's here, it's an asset. But those that really understand what the implications are, Bitcoin is becoming the hardest money that human civilization will ever have. So when it becomes the world de facto money, that that, um, unit of account won't have a price, meaning one Bitcoin is just gonna be one Bitcoin. However, what you can purchase with one Bitcoin that is what is gonna be the denomination. So everything, whether it's 25 years from now or 50 years from now, but the, where Bitcoin is, is, is going is that it's being monetized to take over as the monetary unit for the world. Just like today, the monetary reserve currency is the US dollar, it would be nonsensical to say, how much is one U.S. dollar in U.S. dollars? People yeah. say, what do you mean? One U.S. dollar is one U.S. dollar. In the future, it's going to be nonsensical to say, how much is one Bitcoin in Bitcoin terms? Well, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. So, But that is a fundamental understanding that once that clicks, then you realize, I don't have enough Bitcoin. Yeah. Because if everything is going to be priced in Bitcoin, the only measure that anybody should care about is how many Satoshis do I have? How many Bitcoins do I have? So that's where that statement comes 
from. Plenty of folks understand that. I'm not revealing something that is unique in my understanding, but those that really understand that know that to be true. Yeah, that's a excellent way of putting it. And uh, we'll definitely delve deeper into this fundamental understanding uh, for our audience and those that are maybe not as deep into Bitcoin yet. Uh, however, we, I think we would like to move back in time a little bit towards your journey into Bitcoin and namely as well into uh, acquisition workforce. Uh, so could you give us a quick uh, summary of maybe your background and how that led to you discovering Bitcoin and as you like to put it, uh, becoming uh, orange pilled? Yes. So I actually started my career working as an engineer maintaining nuclear power plants. So while my uh, degree was in advanced mathematics and statistics, um, I started doing maintenance work of various engineering disciplines at three nuclear power plants, one in Maryland, one in uh, Massachusetts, and one in Ohio. And then I got a master's in information systems, and then I did about 14 years with the big consultancies doing IT projects on a worldwide basis. Um, and I would lead in, lead in large implementations of SAP, you know, the ERP systems. And then in uh, 1998, I uh, ventured out um, on my own. I started my company, it's called Acquisition Workforce. And primarily what I do is I help government agencies here in the United States, primarily Homeland Security, um, come up with better requirements for technology projects. So that is what we do. We, we scope out the needs. We come up with acquisition policy, which is the procurement policy. So I've been doing that. That is 90% um, um, of my revenue is helping governments do better procurements. In two, it's interesting, in 2015, a former colleague of mine um, called me up 2015, January 2015, and said, hey, Gustavo, um, are you into Bitcoin? And I said, yeah, I've, I've heard it, but no, I don't need it. I don't do gaming. I don't do, I don't, I don't buy drugs on the internet. I don't need it. Um, and I discarded it January, January of 2015. And Bitcoin was, I remember because he told me, Hey, Bitcoin's 250 and this is the future. And I said, no, no, I don't need it. I have I have PayPal, um, PayPal's working fine. I have my debit card. So that was my, my first reaction is, yes, I had heard it in 2015. No, I don't need it. And this buddy of mine kept calling me and I said, you know, uh, can you just stop calling me about Bitcoin? I said, but you're my buddy. You, you have to start understanding this. And I said, no, no, no. Fast forward two years. I was listening to a podcast and I, I give huge credit to Tim Ferriss. He was interviewing Nick Sabo with the help of Naval Ravikant on the Tim Ferriss show is episode 244. I'll never forget it because I was on my bike on a very hot summer day in DC, August 1st. And as I listened to this interview of Nick Sabo, I started getting really, really, um, 
almost almost to the point that I started getting like a rash because I now realized what I had been missing. And I was, I saw the light. I, I, one podcast episode. Now, of course I had been hearing tidbits here and there and a little bit on CNBC, but it's, 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 it's like if somebody's trying to sell you um, uh, a widget that you could care less, let's say you're not a golfer and somebody's trying to sell you golf clubs. Well, you kind of discard it because you're not into golfing. That was me with Bitcoin. I, I just don't need it. I have no use for it in my life. And that's how I discarded it until I listened to Nick Sabo. So on that first day, August 1st, 2017, I got home and I bought my first Bitcoin, $2,850. And since then, I've been deep reading everything that I could get my hands on. And it actually led me to really read a lot about how the Federal Reserve banking system was created. And um, I've never stopped since. Now, I still have my business acquisition workforce and many government agencies have asked me to put together courses and presentations on quote unquote blockchain technology. They want to know, can, can we use this in the federal government? Uh, what's, what's good? What's bad? What's smoke and mirrors? Um, now, most of what I still do is that government consultant work for large IT purchases. And about 10% of my revenue now is helping small companies actually do the Michael Michael Saylor play, which is putting Bitcoin in their treasury uh, as a long-term asset. So that's where I am today. And, and again, um, I'd be happy to take this discussion any way, any way you want it. So thank you again, guys. Oh, thank you. That was a really profound uh, answer. And I'm just curious, uh, or I just wanted to add there, like, do you think there maybe there is a power of discovering something also by yourself, right? Because in the beginning when your body was calling you, you know, although it was your body, it is a different feeling to be feeling like you're almost forced to learn something or to understand something. But like that feeling when you're getting enlightened by your own discovery, that is something special, right? Like a podcast, a book or... Yes, it, it, there's an old uh, Chinese proverb that says, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Oof. Um, and, and, you know, that's 5,000 years old, <laughs> maybe not 5,000, <laughs> but definitely thousands of year old. And, and that is exactly true. Um, when somebody is willing to, to just learn um, and that's the only way it can it, it can happen. Otherwise, you you'll end up buying a, a set of golf clubs when you're not even a golfer and you intend yeah. not to even golf. So that's that's kind of like the silly analogy that. But uh, if you if you're willing to, and I think that's the fundamental reason why some people get it, and why some people think they got it. And the minute there's a market downturn, and I'm sure we can talk about the market downturn, the minute there's a market downturn, they sell because they just haven't learned yet. So yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree that you have to first learn on your own and not um, just listen to somebody else's conviction. Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay, but let's uh, just 
dig deeper into Bitcoin because that's our uh, common purpose here. But before entering more the rabbit's hole, if you will, it would be interesting to hear your definition of some of the terms that are often used within this space. Uh, so Gustavo, what is really a blockchain? How would you define a cryptocurrency and more specifically Bitcoin? Yeah, so it's interesting because I very quickly, uh, after I already had one whole Bitcoin um, in my pocket, um, I started reading a lot about blockchain. And this is not a journey unlike many people that first learn about Bitcoin, then they start hearing what blockchain is. And to me, for the first year of my learning, I thought blockchain was much more important than Bitcoin. And because it was it was almost like if you have a, a problem, blockchain solves this. If you have another problem, blockchain solves that. And I understood it from a technology perspective to be the best way of ensuring that no one central party could dictate the or, or could change history. So when I first started looking at all these thousands of use cases, the 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 going in position was that blockchain in a very distributed fashion was going to solve the problem that many centralized databases have, which is they're under the control of a very centralized set of authority, whether it's one person or even 50 people. So I, I immediately understood what the capability was, but I can tell you, and maybe I can pause, that what I first understood had serious faulty logic because I assumed that as distributed, now this is again, now 2018 primarily, I was assuming that as distributed as Bitcoin was, that any other project could achieve that level of, 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 of network effects um, and decentralization that Bitcoin had achieved. So my assumption is, sure, Bitcoin was the first one out of the gate, it's very decentralized. And in 2018, there were at least 10,000 nodes. Um, maybe it's double full nodes today. Um, and, and I thought, well, if, if Bitcoin being the first one out of the gate, the chances that a good viable project could achieve the same are also as great. And that was kind of faulty. So I, I understood what blockchain was for Bitcoin and I thought, that it could apply to thousands of other uh, use cases. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there if, if you have a question regarding my, my early assumptions. Yeah, so, so I think that's really interesting. And I also think um, that's quite common, right? That many people get introduced into blockchain and then Bitcoin, but then you immediately start running after other things, right? Like you try to, but okay, Bitcoin is the first application, but what is really hiding behind it? I want to find the, the real uh, thing that will revolutionize the whole industry. Like the, you're going to Ethereum and then maybe you're going to other projects uh, and you think Bitcoin 
Bitcoin was just like the, the test version, but then uh, some people, and I, I'm assuming you too as well, are going back to Bitcoin and you're realizing that, okay, no, no, wait a little bit. Bitcoin is actually the revolution. I don't need to, to look at it further. Yeah, and it's interesting. And, I, and I'm, I'm actually was in a very good place because again, as I mentioned, many of these government agencies uh, wanted to try to see if they could use blockchain technology and they had an adverse reaction to the word Bitcoin. And in many cases, they said, Gustavo, you cannot mention the word Bitcoin when you walk into our offices, um, but you can mention blockchain. And the the issue is this, um, in the federal government, whenever you dream of a project, whenever you put the boundaries on a project, you have to show that not only is it viable from a technology perspective, but it's also a good use of taxpayers' money from a economic analysis perspective. And very quickly, we could see that zero of the blockchain type solutions that they were envisioning was gonna be uh, cheaper to deploy. So when a government agency sees that, hey, I can do, there's this need, I could fill it with the traditional um, centralized databases for say a million dollars, but I could do the same with blockchain, but it's gonna cost twice as much. That's end of discussion. Why are you going to pay? Why are you going to pay more? So many of the government uh, projects were done as pilot projects or proof of concept projects because they wouldn't be able to get the commitment from you know the higher ups that we could do this at a very large scale. So yes, there have been many uh, technologically successful projects because. You you could use blockchain for many things. Now, does it make economic sense? Is it long? Is it long term viable? And and the answer was no. And and again, I was I was lucky because I was in a situation where my government clients were asking me to to help them understand from a technology perspective. And it was very evident that this was not a technology to expedite matters to solve costs. Um, and, and the whole issue was, does it make sense to have a permissioned <laughs> blockchain? And that just doesn't make sense. Um, so, so yes, now I put the federal government off to the side. Then I started going down these various um, uh, rabbit holes regarding, well, okay, yes, Bitcoin is good for a monetary asset and the blockchain for Bitcoin is very robust, but here's here are these other blockchains and uh, Ethereum and whatnot. So one of the, one of the uh, things that I did because I really wanted to test my confirmation bias yeah. is, the more I understood about the technology, and I know I'm not a, I used to be an assembler, uh, machine code type of programmer because I'm you know older than your parents. Yeah. Um, and so I understand technology and I could read, I, I, I read 
a lot of the every line of code of Bitcoin, C++. Uh, I'm not a developer today, but I can read code. And I wanted to also under, understand why was it that the more I read about all these other projects, the more convincing they made a case for Bitcoin. So even though I would I would attempt to read about, um, well, I don't know if we need to start mentioning names, but I, as I started reading about the promise of Ethereum and the promise of, of Cardano and the promise of all these other uh, uh, blockchains, it almost seemed to me that they were making a case for why Bitcoin was the only winner. And while these projects had some deployments, so it's not like they didn't deploy anything. It it um it it, it was looking like they, they were making more and more of a case for Bitcoin. So what I ended up doing to test my confirmation bias. I entered a full-fledged master's program um, from uh, Ziggurat uh, Institute of Technology. Um, it's actually called Ziggurat Innovation and Technology uh, Business School. And what I wanted to do was this was a, a master's program on blockchain, and it had no bias towards any one platform, whether it was Ethereum or Cardano or, or you name it or blockchain, nothing. It was diagnostic. And that's exactly the type of masters I wanted to do to really fundamentally understand why is it that everything that I read, I keep getting a bigger and bigger conviction on Bitcoin. And this was a master's that I did from May of 2020 to June of 2021. And um, out of 44 participants, if you will, I think about four of us came out of the program even more convicted on, on Bitcoin. Knew that of all the participants that wanted to build on layer two Bitcoin, whether it's Lightning Networks or in sidechains or layer three, layer four, and eventually we may have five or six layers on top of Bitcoin. I knew that those folks that were gonna concentrate on building on top of Bitcoin had a much greater chance of success than those that wanted to start and swim upstream trying to deploy projects on these other chains. So again, that, that was a master's program that I did to really test my confirmation as to why I kept seeing almost everything point to Bitcoin. And um, uh, I'm very glad I did it. It nearly killed me because I have to you know, run my own business. Uh, I've got <laughs> wife and kids, but uh, had it not been for the lockdown, I don't think I would have had the time to, to study it. So that kind of answered the, the, the question of blockchain. So in, in a nutshell, we know blockchains are here. Yeah. However, the long-term viability, the long-term viability is very questionable. Now, if you tell me, Gustavo, are blockchains going to be with us for the next three or four years? Absolutely. There's, uh, there's no question about it. But if somebody says, hey, like you guys, you're, you guys are young. I'm a 25-year-old. I'm a should, should I invest? 
my next 10 years on this project, I would say on, on, on some of these alternative blockchains, that's a gamble that would be uh, very difficult for me to say, hey, it doesn't matter which blockchain project you latch on to, they're all going to be successful. Mm. No, uh, I, I would, uh, with everything that I've been studying, uh, really on a daily basis for five years, I, I would say if you want a chance for success, build on top of, of, of Bitcoin, build as a, on top of a lay, you know any of these layers that are coming up. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I, I'm not one that says none of the other blockchains will ever work because they are working today. So that's not even a, a discussion. They're working today. Will they be around in 10 years? I would say 90% won't. Yeah. Of course, but uh, out of curiosity then, through your study of these alternative blockchains, for example, Ethereum, Cardano, as you mentioned, uh, what what exactly made you, uh, what, what exactly did you see that made you believe that they strengthened the case for Bitcoin? Because uh, of course, I haven't studied it, unfortunately, as much as you, but from, from my perspective, you could argue that it's very hard. Of course, they at this their core at its core, they're both blockchains, but in terms of their use cases and what 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 they're built to do is extremely different uh, to generalize. So so how 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 can you see that um, Bitcoin is the the uh, blockchain derived uh, Bitcoin? Well, you, uh, that, uh, yeah. So so they so the 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 issue is this. Um, and, and I had many uh, very lively, insightful discussions with many of my uh, colleagues when we were doing the masters. The, the fundamental issue is this. If a blockchain was trying to be everything except money, if a blockchain has its own token and is trying to be anything other than money, they have a big conflict because the primary purpose for all these alternative blockchains is that they're trying to be two things. They're trying to be money. And at the same time, they're trying to have usability. Um, and, and there's this, this, this conflict and it's actually um, uh, happening to Ethereum right now where you, you can't be both. Now, none of these technologies, and, and this, this, is, this is fundamental, none of these platforms, let, let's just say a platform that is all about smart contracts, none of these platforms require from a technology perspective to have their own token. You as young professionals venturing out into the world, you could create the promise of a better way of doing smart contracts using Satoshi's or using Bitcoin as the fundamental exchange of value. However, all of these other platforms are trying to do two things. They're trying to have some utility and at the same time, they're trying to have a monetary value. And it's very, and those are in conflict because if you have a token 
that is appreciated in value, you're gonna create a sense that why would I want to spend this? So there's this conflict. So the issue is this, 90% of these alternative blockchains, the founders of those projects need for that token to go up in value to sustain the interest. However, if they are successful in gaining that value, people are not gonna wanna spend it for whatever trivial use case they're trying to fabricate. So there's a, there's a conflict. Um, and, and it's a conflict that no one is going to resolve because it's human nature that um, I, I don't want to spend very good earned money on something that doesn't give me an equal return. So if you were to spend, um, going back to golf, if, if a set of golf clubs are $1,000 and you get full value for that golf clubs, you're gonna spend $1,000 on, on those golf clubs. But suddenly, if those golf clubs that have their own token, instead of $1,000, now there are, they cost $10,000, you're gonna say, hmm, I'm glad my golf club token uh, has gone up in value, but there's no way that I'm gonna spend 10,000, quote, dollars for that set of golf clubs. So there is this um, economic factor that is in complete conflict. Now, from a technology perspective, none of these projects had an impediment to use Bitcoin as the token of value. There was no impediment, but obviously what the founders want is to print their own money. There's nothing more in the human psyche that captures somebody's attention than the ability to print your own money. I mean, if, if, since, since the beginning of time, people have said, if money only grew on trees, well, now we have crypto. That's the equivalent of money growing on trees. And so that's, um, that's part of the reason that, quote unquote, successful, there, there are two types of projects. So the ones that are not successful, that token value, is gonna is, is, is gonna disappear and so the project disappears. But even the ones that are able to sustain themselves, that token value is gonna increase to a point and then nobody wants to use it for its utility. And that token value, as much as that it can appreciate, is never gonna be as sound as Bitcoin. So there is this game of time. Could could you provide enough value for people to use that token? Sure, in the short term, but in the long term, uh, so it's it's a very difficult business proposition that these alternative blockchains are embarking on. It, it's almost like they want to have it both ways. They want their token to be used extensively. They want it to, but at the same time, they want it to go up in value. But the minute it goes up in value, it's not going to be used extensively. And that dilemma will never be solved. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's only, it's only, like I said earlier, it's only becoming the monetary unit of account for anything that you would want to spend in, in, in life. 
so there's there's no there's there's no dichotomy there. So I don't, I don't know if that starts explaining. So that's one part of the monetary uh, value. The other part is that none of these other blockchains, and even the ones that profess not to even be a blockchain, uh, there are many blockchains that are not even blockchains like IOTA. IOTA is being used extensively for internet of things, uh, communication between internet devices, uh, IOTA is a very interesting uh, uh, project, but but even projects that are not quote unquote blockchain, for them to continue to work, they're becoming more and more centralized to a point that the promise of decentralization goes away. And then you have to ask yourself, why are we spending so much money to maintain a system that in essence could be more easily maintained if it was a uh, 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 a good old centralized, secure database with all the firewalls in place. Um, so that's part of the issue. Like for instance, with Ethereum right now, if you gentlemen wanted to have a full node of Ethereum, it might take you three months to sync up a full node. Um, and 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 you know, and I listen to all kinds of different podcasts. And in one time, uh, in fact, it was about a year ago, uh, Vitalik uh, Buterin was asked, does he even have one full node running? And the answer is no. He said, no, uh, it, it just takes too much time to sync. So imagine of all the smart contracts in the world, here's, here's the issue, for instance, with the bloated Ethereum node. I'm here in Washington, DC. Let's say I entered into a small, uh, into a, a nice little smart contract with my next door neighbor. We have a smart contract, and it's it's got to do with some value exchange. It doesn't matter what the value exchange is. Now that smart contract is something that is important to my neighbor and me. Why should it be something that is replicated to every single node? from Sweden to Turkey, to my native country of Colombia, it's nonsensical. And those, those uh, nodes are becoming so bloated that very soon, only a handful, I don't know, maybe a handful is 100 nodes will be full nodes in Ethereum because the size and complexity of these nodes are gonna require, you're gonna require a small data center to have a, a full node. Now, is that a problem? Not particularly if, if you don't think that the promise of decentralization matters to you anymore. So a lot of these projects are realizing that it doesn't make sense to have all of the transactions fully distributed among all the nodes and it's becoming impossible to do in, for instance, in the case of Ethereum. Um, again, it, it might take you uh, $50,000 in three months for you to try to sink an Ethereum node. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, you made uh, some fascinating insights there. Uh, and uh, thank you so much. That that really opened my mind a bit uh, to begin thinking uh, of uh, altcoins apart from Bitcoin in a different manner. Uh, but um, you went into money for a bit. 
and uh, as uh, we believe and you definitely hopefully or think the same is um, Bitcoin is arguably the hardest money uh, ever created. So uh, I was curious, what, 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 how do you define money and what is hard money? And uh, finally, why is our monetary history uh, important for understanding the case for Bitcoin? It's a bit of a loaded question, but uh... no. So, so this is an area that I've really been uh, fascinated because all throughout uh, human history, money um, has been the asset that you want to hold that has the most optionality, optionality. So whether so money is a social construct that humans invented 6000 years ago um and it's a concept again it's a social construct uh, uh concept now sure today is technology en enabled but what what really money means is what asset can i have in my pocket that allows me to buy or exchange for the most things that I could ever want. So humans don't need to be convinced of what eventually is the best money to have because the best money to have is money that can buy me anything that I want. Because imagine if we lived in a world that, that we have a money that is only good for food but if I want to buy a bicycle, and I'm a cycling fanatic, uh, but if I want to buy a bicycle, no, that the money that I have for food doesn't work for bicycles. And then the money that I have that I can use to purchase bicycles is good, but it, it doesn't pay rent because my landlord doesn't accept that type of money. So human beings have always gravitated towards money that gives you the most options. And nobody had to tell human beings what that money was going to be. It, it, it's a discovery process. And through the ages, the hardest money that humans have ever come up with was gold. Gold didn't win because it's pretty to look at, because it's shiny and it's nice and, you know, a, 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 a nice mineral. It won because it's the, the most scarce asset on earth and, human, and humans realized if I hold this, everybody else is gonna want some of it. Uh, so I could exchange it for housing, I can exchange it for food, I could exchange it for, uh, for my bicycle, for anything. And that's what really money is. So today, um, the, the most useful money on earth um, is the US dollar because I could go to Sweden and use the dollar. But if I were to go to Sweden with my Colombian pesos, no merchant in Sweden is gonna say, oh sure, I'll take your Colombian pesos. But they'll take the dollar 
Um, in some cases, I know in Sweden, you can't even pay with cash anymore. So in that case, well, they, even if they wanted to take, you know, a Benjamin Franklin, which is a hundred dollar bill, they couldn't because they just have no cash, no cash register with cash. So I understand some of those technological implications of today, but so truly that is what money is. Now, what is interesting is money had some hardness to it up until 1971. So in August 15, 1971, President Nixon told the world, all of other nations that your, your dollars cannot be redeemed for gold anymore. That was August 15, 1971. Uh, and that's what did away with the gold standard. Now, I, I know in this podcast, we, we don't have too much time to go into um, the history of the gold standard, but that was the last time that it severed, um, uh, the US dollar was severed from, the, from gold. And that's what kept the Federal Reserve Bank from just printing money without any gold reserve. But since 1971, there was no stop in the creation of dollars because you didn't have to have any reserves of gold. So even today, people are realizing, okay, the dollar is being debased. What is debased? Another word, inflation is being inflated away. So people are realizing, okay, if, if, if my dollar is being debased, where do I, how do I protect my wealth? In the United States, people protect their wealth in four ways. Stock market, sure. Commodities, of course. Real estate, yes. And then there is the best way of protecting your wealth is if you have your own business. So, but not everybody can have their own business. But in essence, that's that's the only four places. The best place to store your wealth is if you have a cash flow positive type of business. That's number one. Many people use the stock market. Sure. Now, I, I, in the, also in the stock market, I, I even though. A lot of people don't see it this way. Monetary instruments, you know, whether it's the stock market or whether it's bonds or whether it's futures, that the, the whole financial sector, what are they trying to do? They're trying to run faster than, inf than inf inflation is running behind them. They're trying to outrun inflation. That's what all the financial world is trying to do. Uh, so whether it's stocks, bonds, uh, futures, derivatives, all of that I lump together. So uh, that's what, in essence, a hedge fund will do is they're trying to tell their clients, hey, we can outrun inflation. Again, the second bucket uh, might be, uh, you know, real estate. Um, and, and that's what a lot of the world knows that they're not building more land, so real estate. But, but, in, but in essence, uh, the, the 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 whole issue of today's monetary value, whether it's the euro, the yen, and, and now we have, there are about 17, 18 countries with inflation and in two digits, um, which is, you know, double digit inflation. Um, it's, it's one sure way of losing all your wealth. So, 
let me stop there and 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 have you guys react to that. Yeah, I, I really like uh, the way you're putting this, and also. Uh, I think many people do not really realize that the inflation is in all always like unconsciously what you are competing with uh, in today's markets. That you you feel that oh I'm like for instance during during the COVID lockdown with all the stimulus where people were just gaining money wherever they put it and they felt like oh I'm becoming so much richer. But it's still you're becoming rich on paper, but you do not realized that that like i think you have this number better than me but i think like almost 25 percent of all existing dollars were created like that year uh, and so actually you're competing with 25 percent right so i think like that perspective many people or even even quite uh, sophisticated investors like not just we as business students but all around the world uh, are actually forgetting but but in, in reality in practice i think as you are putting it uh, the the, uh, the it's you can't forget that it's inflation you are uh, trying to yeah run faster than inflation essentially yes you know you know it's interesting so so Think of what the world is like today. If you are a medical doctor, let's say you are a heart surgeon, very, very intelligent, a lot of education. You cannot just be a heart surgeon. You have to also be an excellent financial wizard. Why? Because in today's world is not enough. And let's say for the sake of argument, this heart surgeon is so good. He makes a million dollars a year. Well, if that heart surgeon knows enough that if he were to just to park his money in a bank a year later, he, he would have had the purchasing power completely evaporate and depending on where that heart surgeon is, if he's in a high inflationary uh, environment, uh, whether it's Lebanon, Turkey, Argentina, that heart surgeon knows that he also better become a very good financial wizard. Okay, that's a heart surgeon. Let's say you're a regular school teacher. That school teacher knows, well, you know, whatever, I make $50,000 a year, but I also better become a very good financial wizard because. Otherwise, my few savings are going to evaporate. Well, let's say you are a plumber. Then that plumber knows enough that, okay, if I if I could just save $100 a week, how do I invest it? So the world that we live in, it doesn't take a whole lot of education, whether you are a plumber to a heart surgeon. You have to start thinking in today's world, how do I keep my money from evaporating? And that's a very, very difficult situation because it used to be that there was a way to save money. Now there is absolutely nowhere in the world where you can be good at your craft and you can just park your money yeah. in a bank. Either you, either you need to become... Uh, an invest investor or you will be debased essentially you have to become an investor so that's why a lot of people are realizing that bitcoin which only only it's estimated that maybe two percent 
of the of the entire world has any amount of Bitcoin, whether it's $20 or $200 million, only about 2% of humanity has any Bitcoin. But the promise is, it's going to be the first time that it's, it's the only money that is guaranteed not to be inflated away. It cannot be inflated away. And it's the first time in human history that we're going to have a money that no king, no emperor, the demise of the Roman Empire was primarily caused because of the debasement of their money and they couldn't pay their armies. And the minute a, a soldier could not have you know enough to live that's that, that was the the collapse of the roman empire had to do with a monetary collapse and all empires throughout history have collapsed due to poor monetary uh principles so enter bitcoin and many people and i'll use this uh, word are living in awe awe meaning we are now, for the first time in humanity, can possess a money that nobody can debase. Nobody can inflate it away. And, and so a lot of people are, are starting to view it that way. Now, is Bitcoin the monetary uh, unit of account for the whole world? Of course not. I just said it's only about 2% of the people own some of it. But those that really understand where this is going realize even as a thought experiment, I can put my hard-end money as a plumber, as a teacher, as a heart surgeon. I can put my hard-earned money in Bitcoin and just know that if I'm not day trading, uh, there's a chart that I always tell anybody that wants to get into Bitcoin. Only look at the 200-week moving average. It shows uh, the trend of the Bitcoin price up and to the right, and it's and that trend line has never dipped, meaning it's always been either flat or up. It's never been down. Um, but 200 weeks, to be exact, <laughs> it's 3.8 years. So if you're willing to say as a plumber, as a teacher, as a heart surgeon, I'm going to take some of my savings and put it in Bitcoin and wait minimum of 200 weeks, then the chances that that money was well stored, safeguarded, or guaranteed as opposed to fiat, which is also guaranteed to be debased, whether it's the dollar, the euro, the yen, the yuan. So the choices are really what I tell a lot of people, you really have three choices. If you can outpace inflation, go at it. And that's what the whole financial world is trying to do. Again, outrun inflation. If you can do that, great. You are five or six or seven steps ahead of inflation, perfect. But who, who can do that? Uh, a regular teacher can can get into a hedge fund? No. In the US, a typical hedge fund, you need to have a net worth of at least, on average, $10 million before they even talk to you. So, okay, either 
the choice is, okay, I can get into outpacing inflation. Great, good, good for you. Two, you can remain with fiat and being and know absolutely that your money is going to lose value. And that's what a lot of people are 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 because they're they just haven't learned about uh, Bitcoin. Or three, uh start looking into a hard asset and look at what are all the hard assets that you can put your money in. Now, the de facto easy understanding hard asset is real estate. So you you would say, okay, yes, a lot of people rush and buy into real estate, but real estate, if you really look at it, I'll use the, the word, it's also a shit coin <laughs> because <laughs> real estate, the, the problem with real estate is, 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 is the following. And I'll give you an example from a, uh, 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 from uh, my my personal situation, I do a lot of skiing. had a had a beautiful which I just sold. I had a beautiful property in a ski resort called Beaver Creek next to Vail, Colorado. What's the problem with real estate? I have no control over the taxes. Yeah. So given given the situation, economic situation, that jurisdiction where my beautiful piece of property was, was subject to taxes. So, so the taxes became so, so high that it didn't make an economic sense for me to continue to own that piece of property because as an owner, there's no way I can tell the jurisdiction, your taxes are too high, I'm gonna pay you half of it. No, because what do they do? They'll put a lien on your property and then they'll take it away from you. So, and then there's also real estate is also uh, not a good investment because it, it needs upkeep and, and uh, there are all kinds of problems. So, so people are slowly realizing if I cannot get into a hedge fund or, or my business doesn't outpace inflation, then what do I do? And slowly and slowly but surely people are realizing the place to go is park it in Bitcoin again. But a lot of people don't have the discipline to say, I'm going to do so for, in, and not even touch it for 200 weeks. Yeah, That's... but uh, I also I also think, and I think you're touching upon that, but it's all about the questions we ask ourselves, right? Because if I ask the question, how can I become economically better off tomorrow, right? Then, you know, there are thousands of ways, you know, I could sell any services, any service or any good, or I could try to, to day trade or do whatever I want. And maybe I will be economically better off tomorrow. But if I ask myself, how can I store my uh, monetary energy for 100 years, then I assume we also agree with this. Then there is only one answer, right? Absolutely. And um, I guess I wanted to go back to it, but you really uh, brought up a really interesting thought and a sad re reality about the world we live in currently, where the value I provide to society, whether I'm a plumber or a heart surgeon, is simply not enough to even maintain, let alone expand my monetary energy through time. And... Um, it brought me back to what you talked about when in I believe was it 1971 when the gold standard uh, was uh, taken away by Nixon, and I remember I saw this graph uh, regarding that where when we officially 
came into a new era of an inflationary based economy and monetary system that the amount of externalities it had on our world were was frankly shocking from uh it drastically increasing economic inequality uh lowering innovation um just increasing uh, the cost of college it, it, it was incredible what a simp uh, what a such a well what it felt like to be such a small change or of course not a small change but uh we i wouldn't expect such a huge effect of an inflationary based monetary system so i'm curious uh do you believe that the optimal uh, monetary system is a deflationary one similar to uh the breton or the gold standard and how do you see the evolution of uh our world uh like can we end up in a bitcoin standard yeah it it's it's interesting because obviously the closest that humanity has come to having a a a hard money standard was the gold standard because because of the properties of gold it became very difficult for it to even today to have remained put aside nixon even if nixon hadn't taken away the peg of the dollar to gold the the problems from a technology perspective given that gold is very heavy and expensive to to uh store and impractical for daily use obviously there was the this the solution quote-unquote solution was to have claims on gold and that's you know paper gold and that became you know all of the uh, you know currencies that said don't worry your money is as good as gold and the u.s bills um had at the bottom a bearer asset bearer meaning whoever carries this piece of paper um can redeem it for gold now in 1933 um they took that away from the citizens meaning so the first a lot of people think the us went off the gold standard uh <laughs> in 1971 no it it actually became illegal to own gold um in 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 1933 now it wasn't illegal for nations to own gold and the, the, there's a whole fascinating read about uh is one of the best books that i've read about the rise of central banking um which is the creature from jekyll island it's a fantastic read as to how Jekyll Island is a small little gulf community off the coast of uh it's 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 practically just one small little bridge away from it's a, off the coast of the state of Georgia but anyway Jekyll Island is where all the bankers of the United States came together and came up with the charter if you will of what became the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States and how it was supposed to be 
a way of guaranteeing that a few elites were going to control the monetary uh, standard for the world. So that's a fascinating read. But to, to answer your question, what there was an attempt, there was an attempt to have currency in paper or even digital currency pegged to something that is very hard to produce, meaning humanity knew that hard money means many things, but one of the things that it means, it's hard to produce. So the reason that humanity ended up with gold is that it's hard to produce gold. It's, it's very expensive to dig it out. In the United States, there was a gold rush in California, uh, 1849, and in fact, if you know the the football team, the 49ers, the, yep. the San Francisco 49ers is from 1849, which was the gold rush in California. Now, if I lived in San Francisco for many years, and all of the hills in California, they still have plenty of gold. People think, oh, gold, they found all the gold, and, and now there's no more gold. The issue is, that is very expensive to dig it out. The same happened in Colorado with the gold rush in Colorado, the gold rush in California. It's not that the gold disappeared. It's there, plenty of it. It's just that it becomes very expensive to get it. So people realized, oh, I like money that is pegged to something that is very hard to produce. Now, it doesn't take a college student to realize if a government can print money without any cost of doing so. It doesn't take, again, a college student or a plumber that just went to some vocational school to realize this is money that if I hold it under my mattress next year, instead of buying what I need to buy for my family, I'm gonna be buying a third or half. Or if you are you know, in a situation like you see Sri Lanka, uh, just had a co complete monetary collapse. The whole country is in a state of civil unrest because the monetary system collapsed. How does that happen? When a government prints money without any cost. So that's all monies in the world. 100% of the monies in the world mm -hmm. have no cost to produce. And people are starting to wake up to what do I do? And there's a term that I like to say, when money breaks, everything becomes money. Yeah, or, just, uh, or there is, uh, I think it's it's the same, um, the same uh, meaning and essence, but also like when money is, when money is uh, ab abundant and everything else becomes scarce and then the other way around, right? Correct. Yeah, because when when people see when people see their their currency in their own country start not having any value, what do they rush to get? Anything that money can buy. Yeah. Um, you know, they'll start stacking whatever uh, paper, toilet paper. They'll start buying anything that is not perishable, because anything it's worth more than this paper. So we are slowly entering into the human natural tendency. And it's not something that you have to convince very hard, but
But once people understand my options are very reduced because money is easy to print, people are slowly starting to say, I am willing to put not next month's rent payment. I'm willing to put something for the future in Bitcoin. Yeah. Again, if you if you only have $500 and that's money for the rent, no, do not put it in Bitcoin. And I tell everybody, do not buy any Bitcoin unless you can wait 200 weeks. Yeah. Really? Why 200 weeks? Why not 100 weeks? Because over time, there is enough people like you gentlemen and people that I talk to that are realizing I am willing to store it for three and a half years. And, yeah. and that's what slowly is happening which is completely contrary. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about all these other cryptos, Com completely contrary to the crypto mindset. The crypto mindset is there's no way I'm going to wait three and a half, 3.8 years. Yeah. I want to make money with a 90 day time horizon. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I've got 90 days to make it rich. If you talk to a typical crypto holder, do you believe in your project so much that you're willing to lock it up in a smart contract? Because they love to talk about a smart contract. You're willing to lock it up where you cannot touch it for four years? They'll say, no, I'm not willing to do that. Because they know that it's almost like they are just like a business is trying to outpace inflation. A lot of people in crypto, they're trying to be smart enough to make money and dump it back into fiat as soon as they make what they deem to be a good gain. Yeah, so let's let's focus on on because since we're talking about it, let's focus on the differences a little bit between Bitcoin and other like cryptocurrencies or uh, projects, uh, because I think it's becoming a common view, especially among Bitcoiners. I reckon that there are like nineteen thousand plus unregistered securities, and then there is Bitcoin. So I'm curious, do you agree with that uh, view, and if so, why? And also, how do you effectively separate like in your mindset and like explicitly when explaining for people, how do you effectively separate Bitcoin as a phenomenon from other digital assets within this space? Well, what you have to see is <clears throat> that Bitcoin is the only one that if the U.S. government wanted to summon to go to Capitol Hill to Congress and testify Bitcoin is the only currency that has no leader. The, the U.S. government couldn't find anybody that could go and, and be the representative of Bitcoin. There isn't one. This gentleman, and I believe was a... A, a gentleman, not a not a woman, <laughs> Satoshi. Um, this gentleman, for all we know, he's already dead. Um, as a thought experiment, it would be incredible if he's still walking this green earth. Um, but Bitcoin is the only one that has no team, no leader, no central authority. Uh, so that if right there, that differentiates it. However, 
all the other projects, there are leaders where if a big enough gun was put to their head, the government could make it. In other words, all the other projects have leaders and they're known where if a government, not the US or any governments, made it kind of like a life or death situation, either you shut this down or or will imprison you, they could find those people to shut it down. So in essence, all the other projects, they have known leaders um, and, and they could be shut down. So from, from if, if you wanna use the word fork, right there, there's no one the government could call to say you have to shut down Bitcoin. It, it's, it's impossible to shut down. However, I, I contest that it's not impossible to shut down any of the other ones. Okay. It's, it's not. It's, so the, right, right out of the gate, uh, there's, a, there's a matter of um, uh, human beings behind the other projects that if they needed to shut them down, they could be shut down. Now, from a, from a financial perspective, look at it this way. A venture capitalist in, in the traditional fiat world puts money into a project expecting some return in the future if that project is successful. So that's before cryptocurrencies ever surfaced. So let's call it before January 3rd, 2009 the first uh, uh, Bitcoin block being minted. So before uh, January of 2009, all venture capitalists would do is, I'm gonna put money in a project expecting, hopefully some return in the future. There, that model still exists for companies that are building on top of Bitcoin, where the VCs, are betting on the future of that project on some future market product fit, um, on some future capability for that company to have a good service, a good product for, for, for humanity. Whereas in the crypto world, the VCs have no interest whatsoever on whether that project succeeds in the long term. The VCs in the crypto industry get a bunch of tokens up front where their payday is not a year or two years or four years into the future. Their payday is immediate where they have these tokens and they can start selling them hopefully before the whole thing collapses. So I'm, I've, I've just mentioned two fundamentally different things. One is, again, there are leaders behind crypto projects. There's no leader behind Bitcoin. And from a venture capital perspective, there are many companies building on top of Bitcoin that know that those VCs are expecting some huge, returns, but three, four, maybe five years later. Whereas again, in the crypto industry, 
many, many of these VCs know that their payday is on day one, where they become advocates for that project and they start selling immediately, not all at once because they would tank the market. Um, so that's a fundamental reason. Now, the third fundamental reason, you just have to ask it on a personal level. What is it about this crypto product or service that I cannot live without? What is it that is that is offering the marketplace? And a lot of the friends that are way smarter than me that are into these crypto projects, they could care less what the product or service is. The only thing they care about is that token appreciating. So it's not something like right now I'm talking to you from my home where I have pretty, pretty good internet connection. My, my usability of that internet is fundamental. But when you ask some of these crypto projects and these people holding coins, how would your life change if that product or service, if you couldn't use it anymore? And they say, what do you mean? I'm not using that product or service. I just want this damn token to appreciate. So you have to start looking at what are what is so fundamental about these crypto projects that you couldn't live without? Is it part of your daily living? Is it part of what you need to run your business. Uh, and a lot, again, a lot of these um, um, uh, projects have the promise of token appreciation and, and nothing else. Now, I'm not saying all, but you know, if, if you're into gaming and, and, and let's say gaming is it's how you wanna spend your entertainment money and your entertainment time, um, of, for instance, gentlemen, I'll just give you one example. I lived in Las Vegas. I was doing a large SIP implementation in, in Las Vegas. I lived in Las Vegas a year. I know people get entertainment value out of gambling. So if somebody is getting entertainment value gambling with cryptocurrencies, great. Now they have a very clear picture that they are gambling from their living room, and if that's their entertainment, who am I to say you shouldn't entertain yourself gambling? That's a personal decision. What I'm talking about is, is that crypto project fundamentally offering something to you from a usability, from an ability to run your business better, from an ability to run your household better? Uh, and, and those are very hard to find there are some, but not 19,000 of them. That's great. Thank you. Uh, thank you for delving into that. And I, I think your, your breaking down of those arguments were very precise and uh, quite profound. If you'd like to learn more about the Digital Asset Society, you can visit the link in the description. We also have a newsletter which we post weekly. Disclosure, some Digital Asset Society members are invested in certain coins, tokens, or NFTs which may have been spoken about in today's episode. This statement is intended to disclose any conflict of interest and should not be misconstrued as a recommendation to purchase any coin, token, or NFT. This content is for informational purposes only and you should not make any investment decisions based solely on it.